and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. This week we won't be opening with a story, as we are focusing on aspects of indigenous culture, and since neither myself nor Devin are indigenous, it would feel inappropriate to use indigenous voices in that way. Today we're going to discuss the green corn ceremony and place it into a historical context. We definitely hope that you listen to this episode, but understand if you would rather hear from indigenous voices speaking to this and other First Nations cultures. I have a few podcasts you can turn to if you would like to hear from indigenous women. Um, The first is All My Relations by Adrienne Keene of Native Appropriations. Um, She's a member of the Cherokee Nation and Matika Wilbur, who is Swinomish and Tulalip. Um, it's a podcast about indigenous culture, food, fashion, writing, etc. Um, another one of my personal favorites is The Secret Life of Canada, um, which is about sort of all things Canadian um, and is hosted by Phelan Johnson um, of the Mohawk and Tuscarora Nations and Leah Simone Bowen, who is a first generation Canadian whose family is from Barbados. Um, another is Unreserved from the CBC journalist Rosanna Deerchild um, and its stories and culture from across Turtle Island. Um, so we really hope that you check out those podcasts as well. Um, they're some of my favorites and really highlight um, indigenous culture from an indigenous perspective. Um, another thing I just wanted to lay out is that we're going to be talking about indigenous religious ceremonies today which is always difficult when talking about it in English because language is so shaped by the culture that it develops in. So some of the phrases, like with the previous episode that I did when we were talking about nations, like those are rough approximations of what the ideas really are in totality. So we're going to use the closest words that we have in English to describe how these cultures conceive of a religious world and ceremony and do the best that we can with the language that we're speaking in. So, Devin, just give a throw a medievalist a bone here. What is the green corn ceremony? Just a an, an overview for someone who doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> okay. Um well the so the green corn ceremony is a often four-day-long festival or religious ceremony practiced specifically by the nations of the Southeast North America. So we're thinking of Cherokee, the Muscogee Creek, the Seminole, etc., all of those sort of from what is now known as North Carolina through Georgia, parts of Alabama, Tennessee kind of area. Um, It begins with the harvest of the first green corn so that's usually july or early august and it'll start like specifically on the the first full moon after the first corn harvest and it's the sort of the signal of a new year the renewal of energy and health in the land and in the people and a thanks, it's really a sort of ceremony of thanksgiving for the bounty that's being harvested and a way of establishing a balance between, you know, the, the various sort of realms that exist in what you might call a theology of these cultures. So the underworld, the upper world, and the plane that humans live on. And the, there's, like, differing animals that live in those different worlds and the sort of spirits of those animals. Yeah. Right, because you said this is the first of the, kind of, the new crop that's coming in, right? Yes. So, so the first green corn is the corn that you can eat, like, green corn is the corn that you can eat right after cooking it. And then, like, later in the harvest, or if you want to keep corn for longer, you have to dry it and then process it. So it might become, like, a corn flour or meal. Um, And you would store that over the winter to, you know, like, continue eating until the new crop is here. But, like, the fresh corn is really, I mean, that's what, you know, we would normally eat, like, corn on the cob. It's really good, sweet, sort of delicious 
Okay, so this is sort of, I mean, you're saying that these are, you know, these ideas of renewal and, you know, a new year and that sort of thing. And that, you know, the the coming together of these different sort of planes, as Mm -hmm. you were saying, and it's, you know, so, I mean, corn is the staple crop, like that's the crop that can be stored long term. Yeah, so there wasn't ever, yeah, so there wasn't wheat in North America. Um, so corn was domesticated in southern Mexico, um, about 9,000 years ago, and it moved up, sorry, my cat's making noise, it moved up along, (laughs) like, three different routes to North America, um, where it became a staple crop, and was a staple crop there, and in Mexico, and in South America, all these places that it was sort of brought by trade between various nations, to the southeast, where it became super, super important to the culture and life of the people. Right, because that would be, you know, like the the kind of food that you you can eat through the winter, mm-hmm. because it, it can dry out. It's not like a like a vegetable. It's not going to go like rotten very easily. No, and you can um, you can so grind that... it down to make like a a meal yeah. or to make bread with it. So. Yeah, so it's like a very versatile ingredient to work yes. with. Which is why now it's like good in for absolutely everything. <laughs> so. <gasps> no, that yeah. makes sense. So do you want to then, kind of jumping off of that, talk about, I mean, obviously it has a lot of like, you know, physical significance mm-hmm. of like, this is the food that we're eating, the dried corn gets us through the mm-hmm. winter, and then... In, in the summer, we can eat this sweet, fresh corn yeah. again. But, you know, what are the kind of religious or cultural sort of sort of things that, that come up around the corn then? Yeah, so um, I'm going to point to a couple of um, anthropologists and theologians when I talk about this. Um, corn was such an integral staple to the sort of pre-contact southeast that it really affects the entire understanding of the world and humanity's place in it and how like survival sort of exists and even if you look at what are sort of the like foundational sacred stories of the Muscogee Creek and the Cherokee in particular corn features super prominently so if you go all the way back to the sort of like genesis story you have like an earth diver story where an animal dives down into the ocean to bring earth up to the surface for an eagle or another creature serpent to you know build the land from and then from that you have these sort of first peoples that are spiritual beings and that's where you get the story of the corn mother or the corn maiden sort of depending on which story Mm -hmm. is popular in that particular culture um, because there's a few variations on it Um, so the one the story of the corn mother is essentially that she's depicted as like an old woman who comes to the aid of a hungry community and often adopts children and she from her body produces corn um, but she does it secretly and one of the adopted sons will see it and mistake it for like this dark magic and make these plans to kill her and because she's like this spiritual being she'll know that this is coming and like confront them not being able to stop them from killing her but confront them and give them the knowledge of how the corn is harvested and then they'll kill her and bury her and corn will grow from that place and she will have like passed down the knowledge of how to tend the corn and that's like the story of where the corn comes from but it's this deep connection to the land and to these spiritual beings and to animals and this sorry my cat's knocking things over now 
<laughs> a, it's a it's a story of of connection to the land and to spiritual beings and to other animals, as well as to this process of dying and rebirth. So it's really this like regenerative story where the energy that you put into the land is what you get back and that something has to be sacrificed in order to gain something, right? You can't just have like perpetual growth essentially. Um, and that the message of that story is also taken into how animals and hunting and all of these other things are treated and into who can practice agriculture because especially with the Cherokee women were the growers, the farmers essentially while men hunted um, and both of those were thought of as like sacred practices. And then there's a, there's the another right. story where it's um, a young beautiful woman who marries a man in a community that's suffering from hunger. She also, in the same way, produces corn from her body, and she's discovered, and again, it's mistaken for this, like, black magic, and she flees and returns to her, like, spiritual home, but her husband comes with her, and she shows him how to grow the corn, and he comes back to his family and teaches them. But again, she has to leave. Um, so something has to be lost in order to gain something, which is why when you look at the, the ceremony, um, it's really a ceremony of death and regeneration. So the ending of one year right, going so... into a new year. Right. No, and that, that makes you know, the this idea of there needing to be that, that balance is really, really interesting, right? Like, the idea that you need to give something up um, in order to gain something. Yeah, and um, it's, it's really about this, like, this, this balance, but also that this is a process of thanksgiving, that there is a a sacred and ritualized way to thank what is being lost so that you can gain. There's similar sort of like particular ceremonies and rituals around eating animals as well and how an animal's body is to be used and that like if you don't use the animal in that particular way, if you don't give it the thanks that its spirit deserves, um, the animals can enact illness onto people, which this makes a special oh, wow. sense considering that there wasn't a whole lot of human-to-human -human communicable diseases pre-contact in North America. Right. So this idea that you would get illness from ill-prepared meat and the, the spiritual content of that uh, really makes a lot of sense when we look back on it. But it the, that idea pervades sort of everything. So how much corn you can grow, how much land you can use for growing the corn, how much land you can use for hunting, how many animals you can take during your hunt. It's really about this balance. And the green corn ceremony is the largest of these, like, balancing ceremonies and if you look at sort of the theology of how the world is divided into you know in modern thought what we would think of as like the spiritual planes or something like that you know mm -hmm. in this like modern western verbiage the humans humans are created last right and so the animals and these spiritual beings that create the plants like corn have more knowledge than people do, but people are given this sort of job to keep balance between these various worlds. So the upper world where birds um, have power and the underworld where it's like fish and serpents, um, and then also on the land, and that the land can be this pathway between these worlds. Humans have to control that balance and keep things in balance or it might become diseased or you might you know get the ire of one of these more powerful spiritual beings 
So it's very much about like respect yeah. to the energies that are have to be gained and lost in order to get food and sustenance, which is really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also very that that connection between it's you know whether it is a mother or a maiden that it's a like this female figure who is necessary for mm-hmm. corn to be there and then as you were saying that then it's the women who would be responsible mm-hmm. for the farming sort of as that like again in that sort of that balance of yeah things. and if you look at the 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 corn mother story um in some of the stories the uh, the sons she's called Selu in Cherokee so if Selu the corn mother Mm -hmm. when she's found out um, and her sons kill her they drag in some of the stories they drag her body around the fields and wherever it is that her blood spills the corn grows um, which is another like powerful symbology of you know these universal stories of like or symbols of womanhood in this the like transference of blood and you know through the body to the earth yeah and and i mean this i i mean you know the connection of women you know when women Mm -hmm. give birth the you know the blood the blood of the menstrual cycle and now also you know this idea of sort of her blood fertilizing and making the earth able to yeah grow so things. it's one of those very ancient uh and like timeless ideas yeah so getting into some of the more specifics now i did want to you know ask where and by whom exactly is this being practiced and what what do these rites and rituals and ceremonies look like? Um, so the the nations that practice a green corn ceremony are the Southeast nations, which are now also in Oklahoma. So we're looking at the, the Cherokee, the Creek or Muscogee, the Seminole, etc. Everyone sort of, I mean, not everyone, but the larger nations from what's now known as North Carolina, Tennessee, down to Georgia, Alabama border. These were people who lived on incredibly fertile land. um, So they were able to really have, you know, sort of like permanent settlements with permanent agriculture because the land is so well irrigated and very fertile, especially for things like corn. These crops that really like, you know, take a lot like cotton, corn, things like that. Um, it would also be like a, a major reason for the American states' removal of these nations to Oklahoma, right. which deeply affects this ceremony. In some cases, sort of removing it from its context entirely. Right, because it's a land-based ceremony yes yeah and this was a huge trauma that we can talk about a little later in the podcast when we really talk about you know how the you know genocidal war acts of the american state really affect this ceremony in particular when the nations are removed to to oklahoma and how the the land there is so different that the the traditional practices of agriculture no longer produce the same food right oklahoma just can't grow the same crops in the same way as these like very fertile river basins in georgia in particular so it's super tragic um not only does the trail of tears really destroy a culture by by killing not destroy like it's obviously still exists but has an irreversible effect on a culture because of so many people who are lost along the way but also then to come to a new place one outside of a planting season but two into a land that you don't understand that you don't have the cultural knowledge of that land to be able to farm it in the way that you were farming before 
really, I mean, it causes this whole long period of, of starvation for the Cherokee and the Creek in particular that causes deep, just horrifying generational traumas within those nations and affects the way that the ceremonies are practiced. Right. So just to back up a bit, do we want to talk yeah. about um, sort of what these ceremonies looked like or, or what we know about these ceremonies, what they would have been like pre-contact? And yeah, then so that's... kind of do a compare and contrast, I guess. Well, so I, I don't really have a compare and contrast. What I can tell you is like most of the knowledge that we have of the rites and rituals are from documentation from the 18th century into the early 19th century before removal. Okay. Um, so, and then we can talk later about the ways that they're being practiced now and the context in which they're being practiced, because it's a little bit different. Right, that um. makes sense. Okay, <laughs> so in that case, I guess I want to know then what is this looking like, at least according to the documents we have from, you know, 18th, 19th century? Yeah, so looking at those specifically, that's where most of the documentation that I have, um, which are secondary sources, are of a four-day festival where a, like, sacred square is built, and people it's outside of where people are like living right so everybody comes to where this square has been established and build campsites on the first day like these lodges that are specifically positioned and the site of where the new fire would be built is created and then so on the first day everything sort of set up and then what you would have is a stickball game, which is also practiced by the Haudenosaunee um, in the lands that we're currently recording this on, um, which is what, it's a similar game uh, throughout the East Coast that is the basis for what becomes lacrosse, right? Right. So that that's what would look familiar to you. Okay. Yeah. So a stickball game would be played amongst the men. Um, and then there would be a feast of the previous, the, the last of the previous year's dried corn. And after the feast, everyone, but especially the men, would fast. So no food or water until the, the green corn feast that ha happens at sort of the, the height of the ceremony. Right. Okay, so... So that's where you have, so, and all of the, the fires in all of the lodges are put out. There's, it's the beginning of this cleansing ritual, so the first day is really this, like, process of, of taking everything from the year before apart mm -hmm. to then be cleansed and rebuilt throughout the rest of the festival. Okay, so then... You said this was four days long, so mm -hmm. what's the second day looking like? So the second day is the day of the women's dance, so this is the women's ribbon dance. Um, these are also called like stomp dances, so um, you've probably seen images of the ribbon dance. The biggest feature is that the, the women wear leggings that have, uh, traditionally that have um, tortoise shells, empty tortoise shells tied to them and okay. these long ribbons and as they dance and sort of, you know, when you stomp your feet into the ground, the, the rattling creates the rhythm of the dance and the ri ribbons sort of fly around and they carry willow branches to gather the prayers of the people and sort of usher in this cleansing spiritual process um, and after that dance then the new ceremonial fire is lit in the the middle of the square on these two on these uh i guess four logs that are set up so that they coordinate with the four cardinal directions 
And the, the willows are used in particular because the willow trees are associated with the water. So it's this link between the land and the water, which the water is seen as a as the, the sort of lifeblood of the earth, right? Right. So... Yeah, the, and, you know, that makes sense that it's sort of this yeah. coming together of, you know, like, the land and the fire and the water. Yeah. So, similar to a lot of practices across the world, this joining of elements and directions. And so then the... The... F- fire is lit using the willows that have been used in the dance with these prayers. Also, some of the green corn and other sacred items would be placed in the fire as offering to, you know, the the other worlds. Right. And then later that fire will be used to then light all of the hearths again. So, you know, this is a time period where you'd be you would keep a, a fire going all year round. 24-7, so what happens when Green Corn Festival starts is you put out all of the fires, and then this new fire, this new clean fire, this rejuvenated fire, is used to then light all of the hearths again. Oh. Yeah, so it's like the the corn, you know, the new crop of corn is feeding you, and like it's also creating this new fire like that's going to keep you warm. Yeah, and, and this dance and the, the relighting is this process of, of purification the and the offering. The, the women are really seen as kind of like representatives of the corn mother, right? So they're dancing in right. the sacred area and representing those stories and that rebirth is the understanding that I have. <laughs> from these right and i yeah because it's i mean like you were saying before it's you know you start out with this you know the story of the corn mother or the corn maiden and then you know that is this this female entity who's made it possible to grow corn and then it's sort of women's role to kind of maintain that agriculture and then yeah and then here this is their part in the green corn or one of their parts in the green corn ceremony is is doing that and making sure that that continues and that you know they can continue to get corn and agriculture so that's oh that that's like a really powerful thing you know yeah it's i mean really like beautiful religious ceremony yeah, and then and then as you as the ceremony continues, you get into the third day, and that's the the men's dance, where the this is one of the ceremonies where the preparation of a of a black drink, which is common in a lot of indigenous cultures in North America. Now that the fire is lit, the some of the green corn will be used to prepare this black drink, which is. The sacred drink, I honestly don't have any idea what actually goes into it, um, but it's used in a lot of ceremonies and it, it makes you vomit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's used to like clean out your insides. It's this like purifying thing. The women would also, uh, and children would, you'd scratch your skin a little bit with like something with like brambles on it and put it onto your skin and the men would do this as well to to purify your outsides as well as your insides and then you would go to a like water source and clean yourself again so it's you know like a lot of cultures this like purifying bath right it's the the idea of sort of both like literal cleansing and also like like both like bathing but also this purification internally as well yeah yeah and the black drink is used and i think there might be more than one kind i'm not totally sure about black drink because it's it's one of those things that's not explained to outsiders well so like the the sources that we have in english it's a lot of people being like and then they 
there's this thing that they drink that looks gross and people throw up. But it's used in a, in a lot of ceremonies and in a lot of medicine. So, yeah, and I mean, that makes sense to me that this is sort of like knowledge that isn't for outsiders. Oh, yeah, definitely not. Right? Like, that's, <laughs> you know, like, we're not supposed to know this, Devin. You don't have to apologize. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, you know, so it's... I think that there might be more than one kind because there's some that there's in some other cultures there's also a black drink that's referenced that you have in ceremonies where you might have visions and or leave your physical body so I, I'm not sure what what all is encompassed in this term that like you know American historians use when they say black drink but in this situation it, it's it's a purifying beverage that makes you you know expel the contents of your body uh and then you once the men are clean they would perform the feather dance which is if you like are a white person googling things if you like look at like oklahoma and the powwows and stuff like those dances with all the big feathers on them those images that's what we're talking about here right but it's super super cool <laughs> and this is you know the the dance that then brings the ceremony to the the green corn feast um so you have the the women's dance then the men's dance and then that day ends with the green corn feast yeah and so people get to eat again right um and then the yeah, fourth so after you've had this fasting yeah period fasting and then you're like to loss eat again. and you've restarted everything and you're coming back into it and the the land has been like refertilized um you know this this cycle has been brought all the way around then you have another feast of this fresh new corn and then you go into day four where they do friendship dances and the men and women play another game of stickball and then everything sort of packed up and cleaned up and you know you leave this sacred site and go back to life again like everyday life is sort right of so it's like. sort of this so like you were saying before though right there's then colonization mm-hmm. starts to happen and you know people are removed from the land mm-hmm. from these sacred sites what i i guess sort of how does this type of colonization and i guess the american state more broadly affect this particular ceremony you know if we're looking at this as sort of a a, a microcosm of the colonial right uh, situation so this is a long process of essentially white European, Euro-Western communities trying to essentially eradicate a, a culture. And there's various ways that they did this. And there's a, there's a real focus, especially throughout the 19th century, in these Euro-Western states, you know, the United States and Canada, of eradicating indigenous religions in particular because that's it seems oh it's talked about as like assimilation but it's really it, it's really a way uh, something that's going to be used to control a population right if you remove them from if you remove somebody from their culture right. from their language from their understanding of how the world works especially in a spiritual way that's going to disconnect them not only from their family and their elders but from the power of their community and so the the u.s state in the beginning isn't necessarily explicitly involved because you can look at the cherokee and creek nations and see this early process of missionaries establishing christian schools on the nation and like trying to teach people to read but in order to participate at the school you have to become a christian which is i think i've i talked about 
both previously, the creation of the Cherokee syllabary sort of comes out of that. It's taught in some sources is speculated to be um, a form of resistance to that kind of indoctrination um, and to those schools in particular, and was actually a particularly effective one. But you can really see the, the kind of like slow chipping away at the power that these ceremonies have and the power that indigenous religion has through the the Indian agents and the missionaries and the policies that are adopted to criminalize, in some cases, indigenous ceremonies. You see this more commonly in the Plains nations, where the, the land that is controlled by the nation is greatly diminished rather than explicit removal to another place. So uh, while you're still tech, like on parts of the land uh, that the nation once controlled, there's explicit criminalization of ceremonial dances. The sun dance and the ghost dance of the Lakota in particular, uh, the participation in either of those dances would result in imprisonment and all sorts of horrifying things um with the green corn dance what happens right is the trail of tears the removal from the land itself so right what happens is we talked about this before um i guess two or three episodes ago where the Southeast nations are taken from their land, the land is auctioned off to white people, and they're forced to walk in the middle of winter to Oklahoma. And thousands of people die, especially older people who weren't able to you know, walk for thousands of miles in the middle of winter. And so you're losing a lot right, of the knowledge of, of the culture and a lot of faith in spirituality. I mean, we talk about this in the plague episode last time. When these horrifying traumatic events happen, the confidence that your spiritual actions are helping is shaken, right? And then once you get to Oklahoma, it's a radically different landscape than Georgia or the North Carolina mountains. And it's it's dry. Yeah, it's a completely it's different dry and arid climate, and much colder. Everything. And they arrive outside of planting season. And so, you know, you get through this horrifying, traumatic, what essentially is a death march, into a place where you're you're there at a time where you can't even grow food and the American state that was supposed to provide for every single citizen of these nations did not. And so it's this period of years of starvation while they're trying to figure out how to grow on the land without help from the state and without help from the indigenous people who already lived there. Because that's the other thing that we don't talk about a lot is that there, when the, the Cherokee and the Creek and the Seminole were removed to what was then called Indian Territory, is now known as Oklahoma, Um, there were already indigenous nations that were living there who were also then forced off of land to make way for these other nations that were being moved there. And those people, that was essentially an invasion for them and were not, you know, understandably not super helpful. And, like, the agriculture in that area was very different. So, like, corn doesn't grow in the same way at the same time. It's just, it's a, it's a totally different place. And so to have these religious ceremonies that are so deeply connected to land to be removed from the land then greatly disrupts that. But if you do go to Oklahoma, you'll see that this practice hasn't, it, it wasn't extinguished. The people were incredibly resilient, and actually it, it changed and evolved with the the communication between the Creek and Cherokee nations in Oklahoma, 
Um, a lot of the dances weren't necessarily practiced in the same way by the Cherokee before removal. They Some of those were learned from the Creek and adopted. It's really cool. And you can look at sort of on the whole at these yeah. major ceremonial dances, um, which this is very different, obviously, from the sun dance and the ghost dance, but these big dances that have these incredible, powerful community-building meanings are used as resistance to the federal state, right? Like, we're going to continue to practice this right. no matter what you say. No matter what you do to us, we're going to do this. This is how we communicate with the world around us this is how we understand who we are this is how we build a community this is how we pass on you know identity um and so it is still it is still practiced um now because of the you know work week and things uh it's the usually the thursday after the full moon of the first harvest um and it goes through the weekend Right. But a, a really sort of screwed up thing that I found in this book that I was reading about this is that even now you see these, if they're not conscious attempts to undermine indigenous culture, they're certainly out of touch. Um, but these these places where the festivals are being secularized and or like whitewashed so the person who was writing the book the book was published about 10 years ago and they said at the time of writing there were preparations being made for a green corn festival in Oklahoma outside of indigenous lands or outside of indigenous controlled lands that was essentially a state fair but was using a lot of the language and aesthetics of the green corn ceremony in its like promotion and the ways that it was going to exist. And so it's like taking that out of its cultural context is a way to really, you know, undermine the practice itself and the power that the practice can have, you know, as it would with any religious ceremony, if we were going to have a state fair that was centered around mass or something, you know, like it's just, yeah. Like that's just very, very, yeah. Just incredibly disrespectful. And also, yeah, I mean, not only is it, you know, as as you say, kind of this attempt to secularize it and and sort of also at the same time, you know, is just sort of turning something that should be sacred into this like cheap. Yeah. And it's definitely like basically crossing that line from, you know, cultural appreciation appreciation fully into appropriation because you know we're talking about this ceremony and about corn as an important staple crop in North America and corn has become super important to you know Euro Western American identity as well and there are ways to acknowledge that and to acknowledge you know to to integrate a recognition of like the seasons and this time and the spirituality around uh, growing and eating corn without appropriating, you know, this practice, right? Obviously, like Euro Western people shouldn't be like having green corn right. festivals like that. But if you want to, you know, no, take this time to it's, eat corn or it, to find yeah, historical it's also, corn recipes, like, there's a thing you can do. Or to have some other kind of harvest festival. Um, yeah, like, you look at, you know, I, I know when I was, like, a kid, you know, yeah. people, like, made corn husk dolls and stuff. Like, there's things you can do that aren't really, really horribly disrespectful to someone else's culture and religion so maybe do that and like we said at the at the top of the podcast you know there are just so many places where you can hear from indigenous people talking about the culture that they practice and the way that that culture is ever changing and evolving outside of these historical texts that we're talking about Um, because despite what the american state has tried to 
do in like the what is considered the worst genocide in the history of the world, uh, the conquest of the Americas, these cultures still exist and people are still practicing it. And in a lot of cases are willing to teach other people about the culture, right? right? Obviously, you shouldn't go somewhere and expect to be able to participate in something or even to witness it. But there are people who are talking about it and educating, you know, Euro-Westerners or anyone around the world who wants to listen about how these cultures exist now. Um, And it's really powerful and just, uh, like, you know, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) there's there's a lot to be said for, you know, learning and understanding and you know getting getting this like stepping outside of your own bubble and what you're familiar with and like learning about how other people live and other people's traditions and religions but yeah there as you said before there is that line between appreciation and curiosity and wanting to learn and just outright appropriation and and this you know very inappropriate use of things to put it mildly (laughs) yeah and i mean we we're getting into this period of the year in our project where we're talking about harvest festivals and certainly a lot of the european festivals are brought were brought to america and are practiced here but you know when we were talking about you know choosing harvest festivals to speak to with you studying Europe, you know, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the rich complexity of what we would call a religious life in, you know, early North America, in pre-contact North America, in indigenous America continuously to today. I just, I don't know. I found it, I think that it's important in a podcast like this to include those talking about those ceremonies absolutely because i mean as we've said we i could be wrong i mean (laughs) we we focus on our yeah and i think i mean we're historians and we want to talk about ritual and folklore as you know place it into its historical context and also talk about the ways that it's been used as this resistance against colonial and oppressive governments. Yeah, which I think when we talk about the the contemporary practice of the Green Corn Festival is really the the power of this ceremony that this is these ceremonies, the the dances, the coming together of community is really how you res one of the ways that you can like resist this colonizer state you know where the discussion of assimilation the removal of children from families the residential schools which we're going to talk about in a later episode really the the motivation behind all of that is to take people away from their culture and leave them with nothing but the colonizer like my (laughs) culture yeah you know left to them and and by ensuring that the the green corn ceremony continues to happen even if you're no longer on the original land that that this can evolve and move with people is a powerful powerful form of resistance um, that I think is just super important and that people all peoples in North America should learn a bit more about. But yeah, I mean, I think in in conclusion, it's it's been really interesting and very very much an eye opener, sort of learning about how both how these ceremonies were practiced in you know the say the 18th century and the way that this sort of community religious ceremony was so tied to you know the land itself and the way that 
you know, people and communities would understand themselves specifically in relation to where they come from and the land that is that is providing them with the food that they need to go through this next year. And I think that's just really powerful and a very, very important thing to talk about and how, you know, these kinds of traditions and rituals and the bonds that they forge between community members are this very powerful tool of both of building community, but also of resistance in the face of, you know, oppression and injustices. Yeah. And again, uh, remember to check out um, the podcast, the in- the podcasts that I listed before that are hosted by Indigenous women. There's a whole host of new Indigenous-centered and Indigenous-created media out in the world that if you're interested in anything that I said today, there's just so much more uh, with people who really, really understand these practices and beliefs and cultures and are just super informed and we should be listening to them so go and check them out and that's where we're gonna end it here for this week and we'll see you next time don't forget to like and subscribe and if you want us to keep doing this support us on patreon we have a patreon now with merch with merch and we'll be back next week to talk about some european things some european harvest festivals gonna talk about that bread yep that bread next week let's get this bread (laughs) okay stay safe all right do good work